and welcome to the Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Thanks for joining us. This week we're joined by entrepreneur and former mayor of Miami Beach, Philip Levine. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. Also, please check out the links to our friends and recent sponsors in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really does make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, a terrific reporter, Jonathan Carl, published excerpts of a new book in which Attorney General William Barr reveals how he stood up to Trump, who was demanding that the Attorney General try to fix the election after Biden won. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, Barr, under this post, the post facto excuse, of trying to placate Trump while he did the right things, actually enabled and encouraged Trump in the months before the election and in the month afterwards uh, with this big lie that the election might have been stolen. Bill Barr is not a hero in this story or many others. Moreover, James, he did this at the request of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who cowardly refused to admit for the first month that Trump lost the election. Now, he wanted Barr to speak. Why did he want Barr to speak? To do the right thing, to set the record straight, to get the country uh, moving again. No, no. He did it because he said, if you do that, it'll help us win two Senate seats in Georgia in early January. Party over country. No surprise for Mitch McConnell. No. And the Justice Department was totally politicized as an arm of the Republican Party, that that that's they don't they, they t- said it they admitted it they don't, they don't even think anything's wrong with that and of course you can look at at, at Barr or look at Jared they don't Trump I never heard of this guy who is he I had nothing to do with this absolutely nothing it's just all mass confusion out there uh, I, I mean you, you just think of that the the majority leader in collaboration with the Attorney General of the United States do something to try to elect more Republicans to the Senate. I, it, it, did, it did it right in front of you and told you about it, knowing full well that based on their experience from Bush v. Gore, no one's going to do anything about it. And that's what this is all about. This all started in, in no, November of tw- the year 2020. Yeah, it did. Actually started before that, but, uh, you, you know, you're, you're totally, right. totally It, it did it right in front of you, right in front of your face. You know, James, when I was a young reporter, honestly, there was a time that I was a young reporter. I was covering the Senate and the Republican leader, Howard Baker, Baker, enabled passage of Jimmy Carter's very controversial Panama Canal treaties, even though it was opposed by 80 percent of Republicans at that time. Baker knew it was important for the country and he supplied his support. It's the only way the treaties passed. Mitch McConnell and Howard Baker from two adjoining states, both Senate Republicans leaders, when it comes to character, they are they represent the alpha and the omega. It really is a contrast. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I like Bill Barr going on the other day and talking about the need for curbs on human rapacity. You know, why don't we eat another cheeseburger, Bill? <laughs> um. James, one more story fascinated me this week, and that is Jim Clyburn, the number three Democrat in the House, the most prominent black leader in Congress, uh, decided to campaign for the mainstream candidate in Cleveland, Ohio. There's an August 3rd primary for the seat of HUD Secretary Marsha Fudge, who uh, who left. And uh, the, the Clyburn's candidate is running against a real lefty, uh, a woman named Nina Turner. And this goes to the deeper question, I think, of blacks and ideology, because I think despite a lot of noise, uh, I think that that black voters, particularly older black voters, but some young and middle aged black voters, too, are really not the lefties. Pew did a there was a Pew survey cited by one of our former guests, Dave Leonhardt, and the 19 percent of real ultra liberals are overwhelmingly white. And Lisa Lair had a good piece in the New York Times on this. I think that August 3rd Ohio primary really is important for the Democratic Party in sending a well, message. It, this is a huge 
political story. And understand, you got to know who Nina Turner is. She, and she, she insists on being called Senator Nina Turner. She was Bernie Sanders' number one surrogate. She came to South Carolina in you know, really, they thought she was going to be the entree to the black vote in South Carolina. Of course, she turned out to be no such thing. But she is very, she's a very outspoken and very prominent person on the American left. This is just not, you know, somebody that just showed up. And that does, this story, I think, and you read that in, in conjunction with Tom Etzel's piece in this morning's New York Times, where that, that Princeton professor makes exactly the point that I've been trying to make to him blue in the face, is the, the pundit class only pays attention to the kind of people that they know. So their kids go and they come back from, from Duke or Wake Forest and they have four friends with them and you go, gee whiz, man, these young people are all really liberal. And that's not what's going on in, in, in America. That's just what goes on in, in interns and newsrooms and things like that. And that's something that we got to guard against is not to project what young people that we know and hang around what are the views of everybody else. And she was, well, she was I, brilliant on yeah. that. Yeah. I think this is where everything Tom writes is brilliant. Uh, I think that, um, that this, the, the question of, ideology and blacks is really a fascinating one. And there's just evidence after evidence after evidence that that most black voters are what we call, whatever one wants to call, mainstream liberals. They're Obama, they're Clinton, they're Biden uh, liberals. Uh, they're Jim Clyburn, they're Nancy Pelosi liberals. I mean, you look at all the, Joe Biden, South Carolina, uh, the New York mayor's race. Garcia now is looking, is in second place. She and Eric Adams were the anti-defund the police. But uh, sometimes the media, particularly social media, uh, conveys a totally different impression. A part of the American left totally disrespects the opinions of the majority of black people in this country. They want, they, 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 and these, these black people don't want to be used as a political tool. They, they spoke in Louisiana. They spoke in, in, in Georgia. They spoke in New York State. They're speaking everywhere. And they continue to acknowledge that these are people that have an opinion and an influential opinion in the Democratic Party. And this has got to stop. And somebody's got to point this out. It, they, you know, black people are not props to advance some, you know, Trotsky view of the, of the world. They're real voters with real issues, with real problems. And they want people that offer solutions that relate to their life, not this left-wing fantasy land that some of these people walk around in. Yeah, and uh, read Tom Metz. Also read the Lisa Lara piece, the New York Times. And it was on the New York City race, but the, the question uh, was joined, uh, I think, quite well. And it's been true in, 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 in state after state. And you look at most of the black elected officials over the last 20 or 30 years have fallen again in that mainstream category. I mean, Cory Booker, uh, Kamala Harris, really. They are not crazy lefties. No, and they would not, they would not win elections if they were. Well, they win elections in, su- in certain urban yeah. districts. Okay. Not yeah, very and, many. And they went, they went. It's what happens handful. is, so you, you run in a, in a district that has a cooked PVI of 30, plus D35. All right, you run in a, a primary and not very many people vote. And then you get elected in a general because you, you just, if you put it, you, D after your name, you're going to win a district like that. They cannot, they don't travel, they're like a, you know, fresh ear of corn right out of your garden. It doesn't travel a block, all right? It doesn't, they don't travel a, a block outside of, you know, some neighborhoods in Queens or central Boston or whatever. That, that's that. They have not won a race, you know, a general election in anything close to a competitive district. And the only way that you're going to acquire power is you have to win seats in competitive districts, and you cannot do that by being part of this leftist jihad they got going here. True, and uh, the one thing that I think that uh, should give Democrats confidence is that they are probably very small, but the larger block of them is in the House of Representatives. They're not in the Senate, really. And... um, 
there is nobody who is better able to run that ship than Nancy Pelosi. And uh, so far, they've caused her a lot of rhetorical problems, but not very many right. policy or vote problems. Say anything, so you, say anything you want. Just vote like you got to vote. Right. All right, good. We'll keep revisiting that. Hey, James, our guest is Phil Levine, South Florida entrepreneur and former mayor of Miami Beach. Phil, uh, this tragedy is, is, is just beyond description of the surf, Surfside condo collapse. Uh, our close friend, Jill Abramson, who was executive editor of the New York Times, or was, directed coverage of all kinds of catastrophes, she said, be careful of instant analysis. Be careful of people who say, this is what happened. This is what caused it. That seems to me to be a pretty good lesson as the focus now turns to how could this have happened? Al, I agree with you 100%. And first of all, it's a horrible tragedy. I mean, you know, we know people of people, friends of friends that unfortunately uh, have not been recovered, don't know if they're living. Uh, it's a disaster. It affects everyone in the South Florida community and obviously internationally. Uh, but I think there are so many things that need to be investigated here. It's very easy to jump to conclusions. Uh, I know that there's a part of the bandwagon jumping on climate change and sea level rise. And, you know, of course, the media wants to jump on that. It's a phenomenal topic uh, to sell ads around. I've dealt with it as the former mayor. Uh, but I think we need to let the uh, the professionals an analyze this and investigate it and come up with some real, real solid conclusions of what may have happened. Yeah, I, boy, I think that's well put. Uh, the 2018 engineer's report uh, clearly said that there were problems. Uh, it didn't ring out, though, emergency, immediacy. you got to do something right away. The president of the Condominium Association, I gather, wrote a couple months ago that it's gotten worse. There's been deterioration. I could just, we, we live in a condo. I could just imagine when that issue is joined, and they say it costs, it'll cost $16 million to fix some of these kind of owners say that's well over $100,000 per unit, which is a real stretch for some of them. That's got to be one of the considerations you have here because you think it's not going to happen. But, Phil, I would guess there must be a number of other condo and maybe other building owners in the near vicinity who are kind of going through that same, that, that, that same exercise right now. No question about it. And I think what you're seeing is the county mayor, the local mayors, and now going forward and aggressively pushing for these what's called 40-year certifications. Uh, that is a law uh, in the county, basically, where every commercial structure needs to be recertified every 40 years. But once again, we have to realize this building was built in 1981. In 1981, Apple Computer was operating. You know, that was an era of the beginning of high tech. Building construction standards were very high. Uh, you know, high rises have been built for, I mean, I would imagine over 100 years now. Uh, New York City, there's so many buildings over 100 year condominium buildings. In Miami Beach, we have Art Deco structures that are 100 years old, that are very solid, very strong, that are inspected. So, this is a unique situation. We all have to realize that uh, every condo building is going to have to invest in their structure. But that's something that's normal. Uh, yes, we happen to live uh, in an area where there's the ocean, where there's salt water, there's normal erosion. But something different happened here. And when you look at that report, uh, it, it wasn't like you just said. It wasn't like the engineer said, hey, this building, God forbid, is going to fall down. I think he pointed out various things that need to be attended to. Phil, you've alluded to this several times now, and boy, you are no one is a better expert on climate change down there uh, than the former mayor. Uh, do you think that the ravages of salt water and climate change may have been a factor? Or do you think that is unlikely? I'm not quite sure what you're saying on that. I, you know, listen, I'm not an engineer, and I'm not somebody that understands construction like the professionals that can be brought in. But I could tell you that. Uh, uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of buildings all over Florida on the coast. Uh, and uh, God forbid we haven't seen buildings collapse because of this. Uh, could there have been erosion? I'm sure. Uh, but something else happened here. So I'm not a believer that uh, we're going to all of a sudden put together climate change and say climate change is the reason why the building fell down. As you know, climate change is something that We've been dealing with in Miami Beach aggressively and in Miami to make our streets higher, uh, make sure we have stronger pumps. 
uh, and of course, fortify our buildings. But to tie climate change right off the top to the uh, this structure's collapse, I think is a is a leap too far, and I don't think that we should be coming to conclusions over something like that. I know it's a sexy story. I know that the media would love to say, "Now look at this, climate change is going to make all the buildings in Florida collapse." Because, like I said before, it's a hell of a way to sell advertising. Uh, but I don't believe in that apocalyptic story. James Carville. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, just for our readers' information, how far was that building from the north boundary of Miami Beach? Literally less than a block. We're talking about the building to the south of it is considered Miami Beach. So it is incredibly, incredibly close. So I, I want to I want to establish the guest credibility in dealing with this. All right. And take me through governance. So you have the city of Surfside, the city of Miami Beach, and then you have Miami-Dade. All right. In in the way that local government works in South Florida, who's responsible? Who's the primarily responsible for certifying the safety of these buildings? The city, the city of Surfside. They do that. The county has certain regulations that they're involved in, but it's the city's responsibility. So to I have to know. Tell our listeners some of the things that you did as mayor of Miami Beach to mitigate the effects of climate change. Well, James, when I became mayor, uh, I always say, God forbid, it was like Pearl Harbor. We were being attacked, and we were being attacked by Mother Nature. Our streets were flooding during beautiful, sunny days. Uh, And what I found is the city was looking at everything but actually doing what had to be done. It wasn't that complicated. The water was rising, and, of course, the land was not. So what used to be a, uh, a drainage system based on elevation, based on gravity, did not work anymore because the water was too high. So what we went in is looked at our areas of the city that were low-lying, uh, and we started raising the roads. It was very inconvenient. Uh, we had a lot of pushback from residents that didn't want to see their roads raised because it was, it was a challenging thing to go through. Uh, but we not only raised the roads so the water would drain, we put in high-powered pumps so the water would go out with actual pressure into the bay. We put in vortex pumps to clean the water and filter it before it went back out in the bay. Uh, and we did a multitude of things. And I could tell you, it caused traffic jams, and it wasn't fun. Matter of fact, I always tell a story that one of our main roads called Alton Road, we started raising it because it was becoming flooded during these sunny days. And my mother was caught in traffic one day, and she called me and she said, let me tell you something, son. She said, uh, if I was voting for mayor right now, I would, would not vote for you <laughs> because you've caused everyone so much inconvenience. And I said, Mom, but you know what? you got to do it. And people have amnesia. They only remember the finished product. So we started an aggressive campaign to do this at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars with no state or no federal assistance whatsoever. Uh, since I left, that program has been paused a bit. I understand it's coming back online uh, because – Listen, you can't pause Mother Nature. You can't pause the finance companies that need to finance these properties. And you certainly cannot pause the insurance companies that need to insure these properties. So, so we can we don't know if climate played a role in buildings collapse. And people shouldn't say that because we don't have it, it might have. The one thing that we do know that climate plays a role in hurricanes. And we do know it's almost a statistical certainty in the next 10 years there's going to be a really bad storm hit South Florida. And what people are going to start asking themselves, well, if this building, you know, if there's defects in buildings, what's going to happen when the storm comes? Are they going to upgrade the the, the regulations for, for these buildings or what's going to happen going forward? James, ever since we got hit by Hurricane Andrew in the 90s, the building codes in Florida, specifically South Florida, have been drastically strengthened, drastically improved. These buildings, a lot of the newer buildings, uh, can withstand tremendous amount of hurricane force winds. But remember something. All the buildings you see in Miami Beach, as an example, have gone through hurricanes. Matter of fact, we have buildings that have gone through the hurricanes in the 20s and the 30s and are inspected and are standing very, very strongly. So, I, yes, do I believe that they're going to be even more aggressive with the standards and the and the certifications, no question about it, uh, and and making sure that we don't ever, God forbid, run into something like this again. But uh, I, I think the codes are pretty strong right now. Okay. All right, Albert? Uh, one more question on this, uh, Phil, and that is the, the Miami-Dade officials, President Biden, have called for an investigation. 
Uh, I think a grand jury uh, is supposed to be impaneled. What are the liability considerations? Who, who, who's, who, who could be liable here? Well, I'm not an attorney, and uh, but I did watch a good friend of mine on uh, on TV this morning and yesterday who is an attorney by the name of Greg Schlesinger, and he outlined it very, very clearly uh, that there could be some potential liability uh, to the board, uh, to uh, uh, other, God forbid, to the construction company, whatever it may be. Uh, but I, I think more than liability, I think the real focus, of course, uh, besides mediately of recovering uh, and, and hopefully rescuing some of these victims is to make sure it doesn't happen again, to make sure we understand the root cause of what exactly happened here uh, and, and doing everything we can uh, so this will never reoccur. Let me ask you to put your political hat on for a moment. Uh, as I look at the national landscape, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is the hottest property in Trump Republican circles right now. And, and his some of his real appeal is they say he defied the pointy-headed Washington elites uh, on COVID. He, he, he got Florida back. He opened up before they warned him to, and it worked. And the COVID, they've done better on COVID and done better in the economy. Uh, Phil, it's just wrong. It's not true. Uh, he did open up sooner, but actually their COVID record is not as good as California's. Uh, and the economic comeback may not be as good as guys. It's not awful. It's not bad or worse, but they're better too. And yet he is really getting credit for the guy that stood up to the Anthony Fauci's of the world. How does he pull off this con job? I think that he's getting tremendous assistance by the Democratic Party and by the Democrats that are in office and that are running for office. Uh, they've been the greatest allies to Ron DeSantis we've ever seen. Uh, because we know that the Democrats are presiding over chaos and crime in so many of these cities, uh, high taxes in states like New York and California. So I'm not sure it's all Ron DeSantis. I, I think it's the incredible, you know, mayor of New York City, like Bill de Blasio, who probably will be considered one of the worst mayors in American history after he followed one of the greatest mayors in American history. So I'm not sure it's Ron. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree, but, but, but I mean, I, I still wonder... You know why he is really he just won a Western state straw poll over Trump. He he really is to coin a new phrase these days. He is perpetrating with great effectiveness the big lie that he did a great job on COVID. I, I think he that didn't. what we've seen in Florida is I think what we've seen during this crisis, of course, is that our numbers may not be any better, but they're no worse than how certain states operated during COVID. And uh, you know, listen, I'm not a friend. I'm not an ally of the governor. Uh, but I, you got to give credit where credit is due in certain areas. And as we see the country going to cancel culture and woke culture and everything else and the chaos and the protests, and you see the state of Florida and you see a governor who's kind of like saying, listen, I'm not going in that direction. And he pushes the Democrats to go even further left. He's doing nothing but but creating success for himself. And, and the state is hitting on all cylinders. Now, I'm not a great fan. Uh, but I can tell you, like I said in the beginning, um, uh, he has to thank the Democrats, the Democratic Party, the Democrats in power that are operating cities and states because they've done a hell of a job boosting Rod DeSantis. Man, I think that's a that's a that's a that's a dubious uh, claim on his right. part. But anyway, one more thing: Val Deming's chances against Marco Rubio, just quickly. Uh, listen, Val is very talented. She's a she's a uh, a, a smart lady, um, uh, but I'm just not sure. Um, that the state of Florida that voted twice for Donald Trump uh, and I think voted twice or three times for for uh, uh, for Marco Rubio uh, is going to vote for uh, necessarily Val Demings. I'm not so sure. I, maybe. I, I don't know at this point. But I can tell you that what I always thought was a purple state uh, is kind of getting redder. Yeah. Uh, I don't see it getting bluer. I, I have a, yes. I have a little bit of a different take because Florida is a state where roughly two thirds of the voters voted to give felons the right to vote and voted for a fifteen dollar minimum wage. So if you're put me in that environment, that that's that's an environment where I can win elections if I run smart campaigns. And you know when people t every president since Bill Clinton has taken office with a declining rate and has left office with a further declining rate. 
until Joe Biden assumed office. And let me point out to everybody that Baltimore crime rate, crime rate yes, James. violent crime rate, Baltimore, Newark, New Orleans, Cleveland, Chicago, Houston, Los Angeles have always been run by Democrats. And they had the crime rates dropped precipitously from 1992 to 2019. The only thing that changed is we were in the third year of a Trump presidency. So I have no idea. And I mean, a lot of these Democrats say stupid things, but just based on the facts and we saw what happened in New Mexico, if you get in front of this issue, you can do quite well. But it is the, the thing that changed in American society. We were in the fourth year of his presidency and the crime spiked. And it had been going down in Democrat run cities everywhere. And I've, I know you don't think the Democrats should take this issue off the table, but should run very hard at it. Here's my question we have to ask ourselves as Democrats. What's the reason why the state of Florida would want to fire Ron DeSantis? Why would someone want to be elected as opposed to him right now? In other words, what's going wrong in the state of Florida so drastically that you'd want to fire the governor? And that's a big question because that's a very hard question to ask yourself if you're running against him. So I ask you the same question when we talk about Val Demings. Look at Iran. Look at the situation in the Middle East. Look at Marco Rubio, who I'm no fan of. Look at his positions. What would be the reason why the purple bordering red state of Florida would want to fire their Republican senator and elect Val Demings? That's the question. I don't see the answer right now. Well, I, I mean, the answer is, is because people want to see the kinds of things that Democrats are talking about doing. They want to protect and expand Ob Obamacare. They want, you know, investment in infrastructure. They want to raise the minimum wage. They want to, they, they, they want to protect uh, women's health issues. I mean, there's a gazillion reasons that you can put forward as to why we don't need, if, if okay, you do it James, in a coherent let way. Let me uh, tell you what uh, the people in Florida are saying. People in Florida, maybe in other cities, they're seeing this incredible LVMH Gucci bailout. You know what the LVMH Gucci bailout is, right? It's where Washington gives money to people. They spend it on luxury products, Gucci, LVMH, Chanel, and it goes directly to Paris. That's the visual people are seeing right now. No one's looking at that in a very favorable light. Well, well, they shouldn't look at that in a favorable light, Phil. But to answer your question of why should one vote Ron DeSantis out of office, because he's been a lousy governor. He has, he has lied about your COVID success. I'm sorry. There are 25 states in America that are doing better than Florida on per capita COVID cases, on death uh, per capita cases. 25 states. He's doing nutty things like telling cruise ships you can't require vaccination. He's I doing agree. Nutty, he is doing nutty things like saying we're going to have a survey of all yeah. uh, of the, of the political so views. Let me say, so let me so say So that's the reason to vote Ron okay. DeSantis out of office. But you got to have a good candidate. The only way Ron DeSantis is going to lose is because of Ron DeSantis. No Democrat, especially the ones I see right now, are beating Ron DeSantis. Because unless 200 people, God forbid, come back on a cruise ship sick as hell with COVID, and some of them, God forbid, we have casualties, and unless there's a casino issue tied around his neck, the governor, unless he has a forced self, an unenforced error, he is going to be a very challenging guy to beat. We've got to have a reason why. Everything that's nebulous is well, not sellable. That's well, not sellable. spying on, on climate scientists, which they're doing, and, and being a denier, is a pre, it, 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 to me, is a pretty big strike against you. And he is out there. He is a, a adamant denier. And there's nobody in their right mind that doesn't think this is like a big issue. And he's, he, they passed legislation to, to sample the views of people at Florida State universities. Of the eight largest universities in the United States, by enrollment, Florida has four. And they want to spy on faculty members yeah. and students. That, that's, right. If we can't make something out of that, that's the most outrageous thing I've ever heard in my life. And he is a flat-out denier. He said, I'm not that. But we need a big... Democrats need a big opening, and right, right now, I haven't seen it. Whether it's an unforced error or some other terrible situation that occurs under his administration... Right now, it's a very, very uphill battle for a Democrat, especially right. the well, ones I see in the race. Because I'm not sure what they're well, selling. Let's see who's Tell in there. what you're selling. You know, <laughs> well, you know we yeah. need somebody's got to look. I, again, I think we can win. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with voters in Florida. I think there's a lot wrong with the kind of campaigns that we run. And hopefully we'll learn something. 
But I, I just, I, I just again, you show your state, you got two thirds that want to give, have a sense of fairness to let people vote, and two thirds that want a fifteen dollar minimum wage. That's a state that you should be able to win an election or two in. Yeah, but okay. But James, question for you: Are we fighting an economic war, or are we going to fight a cultural war? I think we're in a cultural war, and I think the Democrats are losing that. Well, you're in a culture war because Republicans, uh, you know, set that predicate. Nancy Pelosi's not in a culture war. Joe Biden is not in a culture war. Val Demings is not in a culture war, Phil. Right. Oh, they're going to be in that war. They're in that war. You know, the the least cultural war person I know is Joe Biden, and we can learn a lot from him. And I think they and I I think they can learn. I agree with you 100. And I, I just, you know, I think that, you know, again, we, you know, remember we lost a Senate race in Florida in 2018 by 10,000 votes. Uh, so I, I, you know, I don't know. I think Val is, is, is going to be, a, you know, as good a candidate as we can probably get to run against Rubio. And uh, I hope she takes that motorcycle she rides and, and rides it all over the state because I think that's the kind of image we need because, mm. you know, we can't get on the downside of this issue of what I call public order. Phil Levine, you have been yeah, a terrific guest. You've, you've, you've been lightness about uh, that awful tragedy down there. Uh, let's pray and hope that we find some more survivors and something like this never happens again. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, man. Okay, James, now for those really good questions from listeners all over America and the world, as a matter of fact. Uh, this comes from Eileen in South Windsor, Connecticut, an awfully elegant town. McConnell stated that he would not allow a Supreme Court pick if he wins back the Senate uh, was a signal to his donors. Don't you think that people have stated they thought this was stupid, but I think it's a way for Moscow Mitch to elevate the fundraising dollars. Uh, James, what do you think? He does not care. Okay, just he—he's going to do what he wants to do, and and I and I, I hate to repeat myself, but it goes back to the year two thousand. So he doesn't—he doesn't care. He said, "Yeah, we're not—we're not—we're not going to do that." And then you know, we get a majority, we're going to do what we want to do, and and ever you know, we shouldn't be shocked. He tell—he—he's not particularly duplicitous. He tells you exactly what he's going to do. He's going to stop every Democrat from being that he, that he can from being on there, and he's going to promote every every Republican. And he and he tells you that's what I'm going to do. If I got to hold votes to wait for elections, I'll do that. If I got to change election results, I can try to do that too. I'll do anything. And he just right up front, right in your face. I've got a 1974 column that Mitch McConnell wrote for the Louisville paper. I guess he was a county official then, former Senate aide, calling for public financing of all campaigns. We have to clean up the corruption that is so pervasive in Washington and money and politics. (laughs) I I think Mitch has done a bit of a change. Uh, And, yeah, I think Eileen's right. It's a fundraising scheme. But you know something? That threat, I think, could help Democrats raise money, too. The stakes are bigger. Uh, and I think there's a intensity worry among Democrats. This actually might help them. Maybe yeah. you know if if we exploit it and and you know run it, uh, you know run on it and use it, it could. But it's going to take some discipline to do that because you know when you stay here, they, you know everybody gets about t- they have ten different critiques. Okay, right. we need to settle on a more singular focus critique of him. We're going to continue our nutmeg steak questions. Gary in Mystic, Connecticut, says that Christine Blasey Ford took and passed the lie detector test. Why wasn't Brett Kavanaugh asked to take one? And if he refused, it would have been quite telling. Well, he didn't take one because he was lying. Uh, As Jackie Combs made clear in our show last week in her book, Descent, again, if you haven't gotten it, you ought to read Jackie Combs' book, Descent. That was a great con job they pulled. It is, there is no reason in the world for Christine Blasey Ford to have not told the truth uh, in, those, in those hearings in 2018. Yeah. There was no chance he was going to take a lie detector test. Yeah. Are <laughs> you kidding me? But it's a, good, it's a good thing that you pointed that out. Thank you. This is from Yoav. God, I hope I pronounced his name right. Uh, uh, Y-O-A-V. Uh, how would you pronounce that, James? Yo's. 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 I don't know. Well, Yo's, you're in Santa Monica, California, and you ask good questions. And he said he feels that with the Republicans shrinking demographics combined with their increasingly anti-democratic tendencies, 
that if they get back in power, that their first act will be to eliminate the filibuster altogether. The Democrats are holding out this hope for bipartisanship, uh, and, and they ought to remember there are no real roadblocks for Republicans doing whatever they want to do if they ever assume power again. Uh, you know, what do you think of that? And by the way, maybe as important as his questions, Yove says, I love Magic Spoon and Blinkist. Yay, Yove. Uh, yeah, well, go ahead. That Santa Monica is a beautiful place. And oh, Palisade wow. there. Oh, wow. So if there's a really interesting piece. Uh, it's on the site of New York Magazine by Rick Perlstein, who is, wouldn't you say that Rick is probably the most knowledgeable person there is in, on modern conservatism, certainly one of, one of the top three. He is. And one, yeah. he, he, he kind of takes you through the past 40 years and the authoritarian impulses that exist. And it was, as he pointed out, it was really discovered by, by Richard Worthen in, in, during the 1980 campaign that authoritarianism had great appeal on the right. It, it's really worth reading. And yeah. I think it, it explains a lot. He, he is very good. And I think, again, to give her another plug, I think Jackie captures it in her book, too. But uh, right. uh, there's no question that they... Listen, let me tell you something. The filibuster, the, the, the founding fathers, as we celebrate July 4th uh, and the Constitution, laid out three... Uh, absolute test for a supermajority in the Senate. It was a presidential override of a veto, a treaty approval, and um, uh, to adopt a constitutional amendment. Uh, there is nothing in the Constitution uh, that validates a supermajority for cloture or for for a filibuster, and it's changed all the time. It's not going to change the rule now. We know that, and our hope, as we said time and time again in this program, is to create a carve-out for the campaign finance law. We'll We'll see what happens. Here's Becky in Shakopee, Minnesota. I wonder if that's up in the Iron Range. I don't know. Yeah, usually pretty good with geography, but that's gotten me stumped. Yeah, yeah, me too. She says, am I the only person who's bothered that Bob Woodward had a tape of President Trump admitting to the severity of COVID-19 in the spring of 2020, but chose not to make it public until the fall? Well, first of all, Bob Woodward is one of the great reporters of all times. And sometimes when you're doing a book, you make arrangements as to when things are going to come out. That's the only way people will talk to you. I'm not sure that was totally the case now. Uh, it ought to be noted that it did come out uh, well before the election. And uh, people had a chance to know it. Uh, I think people sort of knew it beforehand. My, my great concern is not with Bob Woodward. My great concern with after one of the most abysmal failures in, in the history of American, uh, the history of the American presidency. I don't think on a domestic issue, uh, this was far worse in many ways than Herbert Hoover or anything else. Uh, Trump didn't pay the huge price that he should have paid. He lost the election. He lost it decisively. Given, if no other reason, given his handling of the pandemic, which experts now say probably cost 300,000 lives, you know, he should have been clobbered two to one. Yeah, it, it, it's true, and you know, actually, it built forty-two thousand votes from losing. If you know, it, it would have taken a like perfect distribution. I mean, obviously, won by more than seven million. Uh, but it's stunning to me that that many people, after all of that, would would vote against. But but it's just you know, it's part of the fabric of American politics. Is about all I can say. And you know, we had some unfortunate. You know, our primaries had some unfortunate positions that were taken that probably hurt a little bit. And uh, I don't know, but you know, I was clearly disappointed down ballot. However, just while we're on this topic, so far, the evidence that we see, I understand history is not on our side to keep the House or win the Senate, win more Senate seats. I totally understand that. I understand we're going to get hurt by reapportionment. True, old true. But, you know, New Mexico... You know, kind of won that district by more than Biden did. You look at Virginia, it was really high turnout, almost 2017 level, which was, the, you know, during the first year of the, the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, you, you look around the country, in, 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 you know, even especially in Louisiana. You know, I'm, I think that you and I would agree on this. The Virginia governor's race is going to be a pretty good marker of telling us where we are going into 2022. And... I don't know. There's a certain number that if Terry wins by, it would be comforting. It's probably three and a half, but I'm open to discussion on that. But I think you yeah. would agree that that's, that's going to be an event that's 
going to tell us a lot. Well, I would agree, but I wouldn't go even as high as three and a half. Ten of the last 11 Virginia governor's races, right. the party that controls the White House has lost. And if, 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 if that's reversed this time, if Terry McAuliffe wins, I, you know, point and a half or two points, that is a political and a psychological boost for Democrats. If, on the other hand, uh, he loses, uh, it's clearly going to be a boost for Republicans. That Virginia race, I think, takes on probably larger importance than it has in a long, long time. Yeah, it also boosts. It also means something, okay? Yeah. yeah. It actually, you know, is a good thermometer of where we are, you know, with a year in and a year to go. And, I, I, you know, I think that race, as much as any, is going to, you know, give us a peek at the whole card for 2022. Yeah. Agree. Um, Clay in Los Angeles via rural Indiana. Boy, uh-huh. uh, I mean, you know, Clay, you've covered it all here, I think. He said, when Indiana passed its voter ID law, my then, which was upheld by the Supreme Court, my then 90-year-old father, who no longer had a driver's license, was not allowed to vote. He only had his VFW card. He was a World War II veteran, which they refused to take his ID. Why aren't Democrats talking more about what these laws do to seniors? Well, it does to seniors. It does to college students. It does to rural blacks. Uh, it does to people with disabilities. You know, people with, most people with disabilities, not all but most, don't have driver's licenses. Uh, and so it's really important. Voter ID laws can be addressed. Uh, I, I think the, the intent is not very good, but in a number of states it can be addressed. But what voter ID laws? It was Texas, I think, uh, some years ago, James, that said a college ID is not legitimate. State college ID is not, not legitimate. But, you know, something, a, a, a carry, a, a concealed weapon, that, that's fine. Well, w- when you get stuff like that, that's just unacceptable. But Democrats... You know, yeah, you ought to complain about it. You ought to highlight it. But what you really ought to do is make sure people have voter IDs. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I don't. We have it in Louisiana, but I don't. I don't see. Th- I think if you can bring a, a a bill from the gas company or the water company, you know, I mean, I think I think they have a lot of ways that they're pretty liberal into what will, they will count as an ID. But I, I don't want to venture too deep into that because. Uh, that, might be wrong on the margins. Uh, but, you know, even Stacey Abrams says she doesn't have a real big issue with uh, with voter ID. But talking about Roll Lujan, just make a note that, you know, Hoosiers, I think, is one of the best sports movies ever made. I can't, every time that's on, on I, I see it to come up on television, I watch it again. <laughs> I don't know how we made that transition from Roll Lujan to Indiana. But what, well, he said he was you are You are dead on right about Hoosiers. I just love the it's not apropos of anything. And it's just kind of fun to watch. To not be apropos of anything, I also would say to me, my favorite Hoosier today is Kyle Schwarber of the Washington Nationals, uh, who, is wow. now, who is now what? Uh, uh, hit, hit 16 in June. In June, man. I, and, right. and a leadoff home run. First pitch last night against a very good Tampa Rays. First pitch. Right. Veteran I, I Southball. Mean, <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I saw way hit it. I mean, we know National Stadium pretty good. He he gave he gave that puppy a ride. That I thought it was going to Baltimore. I mean, that was <laughs> that was. Uh, so anyway, speaking of Hoosiers, I uh, was more modest. I thought it was going to Bethesda. <laughs> <laughs> Final question is from Ed in Elk Grove, California. He said, "What it's worth, I agree with Mr. Carville. You know, you get a lot of respect, James. They always call you Mr. Carville. <laughs> I like but, that. <laughs> about the impotence of the Democratic Party when it came to having Merrick Garland's Supreme Court nominations shit can without any repercussion. And he felt I. He said he felt rage when the uh, Republicans enacted this multi-trillion-dollar tax uh, cut for the really rich." and twice voting to acquit the most corrupt president in the history of American politics. How the hell, then, do the Democrats win the future? Well, yeah, I think there's some lessons learned here. At least I hope there are. And, you know, what we're starting to see carrying forward is one element that you have to have. It's a necessary ingredient is you have to have electable people winning primaries. And I, 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 I think there's some evidence that the party is coming around to that view. And, you know, I go back to the thing we talked about earlier, the, the, the special in Ohio. Uh, that, that race is going to take a, a, 
something to take a look at. It is. It's going to be something. It's going to be something interesting. But but I think when you look at the real evidence, the the party is the voters, the rank and file of the party are, are, are more pragmatic than they are idealistic. And I don't have anything. You know, I, I, idealism is fine as long as it's tempered with pragmatism. And, uh, you know, I, I hope, you know, let, let, let's see what but we saw it in Virginia. All right. What you had clearly two people, you know, running clearly to the left of Terry in a, in a Democratic primary, in a, in, you know, in a, an electorate that is nowhere, but the Democratic electorate in Virginia is majority non-white. And Terry won with like almost you know sixty three sixty two percent of the vote. You look at the, the at New York City. I mean, the bastion of American leftism or whatever you you know whatever you want to call it. It is pretty decisive that the woke block did not do that well in a democratic primary in New York City. Folks, people are trying to tell the party something. Maybe they should listen. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, all right. Well, we love those questions. We also got a number of, of, of observations and suggestions for our Hall uh, Ivy League uh, Hall of Fame Sphincter uh, Awards. Uh, and I'd just like to make you know a couple points. It'll, in two or three weeks, we are going to have our old-timers. Uh, sphincter, uh, Ivy League Sphincter uh, Awards for the Hall of Fame. So you can keep those suggestions coming. Remember, they have to be Ivy League. Uh, I think it was Francis in Pensacola, Florida, recommended George Wallace. I don't think George Wallace went to an Ivy League school. And (laughs) also, I think we're going to have to post these uh, on our show notes because we've had several people like Kay in Hilton Head, Iowa, who nominates Laura Ingram. Laura Ingram is already in the Hall. But we're going to have more nominees uh, in the old-timers category in July, uh, so we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, there, there's, you know, there's going to be a, some really good ones for the old-timers hall. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying right now I think Calhoun's getting in, but, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we have to put these under very, very prayerful consideration. we got to look at the ballot, really, James. Well, look at the ballot, and, you know, right, there's right. no such thing as a slam dunk. Right, right. One thing that I want to pass is Tom Boswell vote, wrote his last column for the uh, Post today. Yeah. And he, one of the great things about, you know, living in Washington, you know, and I moved there in the mid to late 80s, uh, was the Washington Post sports page in Boswell. And it just, you know, what, what a career that Tom Boswell has had and what a well-deserved retirement. Couldn't agree more. I think he's up there with the Red Smiths and the Jim Murrays as among the great sports writers of all times. He was good in a whole lot of sports. Uh, he was unrivaled on baseball. Right. So He, he, he really was. No, and, no. and I hope Tom Boswell, if anyone... You're listening, or anyone knows him. If our nationals come and pull a 2019 again, come back for at least a cameo appearance in the postseason, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hey, James, there are so many outrages, it really is hard to pick. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to just go with one. You know, the House voted this week to remove statutes of Confederate uh, Confederate veterans and white supremacists from the Capitol. No one's rewriting or denying history. They're just not honoring those who betrayed the country uh, or have uh, such outrageous views, starting with Jefferson Davis. And uh, it's good. I, I want to I'm, I'm pleased that 67 Republicans voted for this measure. But 120 Republicans, or 65% of that caucus, insisted that these monuments to traitors should stay in the Capitol. I suspect, James, that most of them are also people who are ranting about the false charge that the critical race theory is somehow undermining our school children. Of course, it's not taught uh, in, uh, in, in schools. It's taught in colleges and law schools. But when it comes to the stand on race and segregation and slavery, I guess, you know, we can never be surprised that crazies like Marjorie Taylor Greene always are on the wrong side. Well, on that issue, 
I highly recommend to our listeners that they go into our archives and listen to the show we had with General Ty Sedgwick. Oh, boy, yes. Right? I think that, and I'm, just, I'm of course I'm tooting my own horn. I'm a salesman. I, I love the show. I think that is the best take on that entire question that I've seen anywhere. And I'm pride of, you know, co-authorship of it. I'll, I'll take it. But I, I, I think I it was, really it was his book was called, what, Robert E. Lee and Me? Right. Right. And it really explains the whole thing in, in, in ways that, that are very clarified. Yep. My outrage of the week is this. I, you know, sometimes I, I, we, we can be critical of, of, of the press. I want to signal out for special praise to Washington Post. That expose on Sonny Perdue was about as damning and as well done as anything I've seen in modern journalism, where he's the incoming Secretary of Agriculture, and Archer Daniels Middling, let's just say that's a company that has an interesting past in its relationship with government, sold him a piece of property, in, you know, something in South Carolina, for $250,000, which by every account was grotesquely undervalued. Of course, he subsequently sold it for $12 million, which is a pretty good, what they call ROI, return on investment. And Purdue has been lobbying very hard to become the president of the University of Georgia, uh, Georgia's university system. And they have, it's a very, my dear friend Steve Wrigley just did it, and he was, just did wonders for, for higher education in Georgia. But, but they run Georgia Tech, University of Georgia, Georgia State, you know, Georgia Southern. It, it, they do it a, a lot better than we do it in Louisiana. They have a single kind of governing body for the whole thing. And, boy, after that story, I, I, I can't imagine that even these hardcore Republicans are going to think this is a very, a very good move on part of the university. You're right, James. And this guy got this sweet, Purdue got this sweetheart deal weeks before he was about to become agriculture secretary under Trump. And as agriculture right. secretary, he was well positioned to do a lot of things, shall we say, that Archer's Daniel Midland would be pleased with. Yeah, it's just like, how can somebody have that? And, and both of those producers are really rich, and they try to get richer. But how can anybody, the, the, just the sheer poor judgment, like, geez, somebody, some lawyer, board member at ADM say, man, this, is a, wait, this thing stinks to high heaven. I guess they don't think like that. I don't think, I don't think they give a shit. You know really why? Don't. You know why they don't? Because unfortunately, they've gotten away with it. And as long yeah, as they, absolutely. as long as they get away and, with it, they're going to keep doing it. And as long as the public does not hold them accountable, right. you're exactly right. I right. couldn't agree with you more. I'm not sure. You know, it's possible. I don't know much about the details of this case. I know very little. But uh, Sonny Purdue could face some legal problems here. Ooh, <laughs> could he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, maybe at the University of Georgia system once a president just going to spend a lot of time at the grand jury but that's what's going to happen yeah. i promise you okay two good outrages we'll be back with more next week yeah that was great hey thanks for listening to politics war room with james carville i'm al hunt don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we really would appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our recent sponsors. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.